Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As I prayed for our time together today, just um, as your pastor, the, the things that we're going to talk about today, the three main points as we go through the text and into um, our application and and digging deeper into those major issues in the text today, um, it can be very difficult because some of the things that we're going to talk about today are things that we can be blind to. You know, the, the, I figure speech or whatever being blind to our blindness. Have you heard that before? <clears throat> and they can be very difficult. As your pastor, as a shepherd, um, I had concern for our hearts in some of these things and, and, and pray that um, on the one hand, we don't want to just gloss over it and go, oh, that was a nice sermon, thanks a lot. Um, on the other hand, to press into Jesus. And as we go through these things today in this passage, if there's something that just strikes you, uh, know what can wash away our sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, praise the one who paid the debt and raised this life up from the dead. He's making all things new. Um, so with that, um, I'm going to ask us today, um, as we work to grasp these concepts that will be a major help to us individually and as a church, uh, let's, let's work hard at focusing in on the text and focusing in on these truths. Um, I, I'm even cautious in the sense of how big these three points can be and how well we can grasp them in 40 minutes time or whatever it takes. The longer this introduction goes, maybe 45. And, but they're all in this text. They're all in this text and so let's look at them and, and um, gaze into these things and, and ask the Lord for his help um, and press on. And know this too, just in my heart for you, as you hear these things on any Sunday, any Sunday, any Sunday, if God pricks your heart and there's something that you know that you're made aware of that you hadn't thought of before, you thought, I need help. This is the place, amen? This is where we run because, because this is where we go here. And we run to Jesus. So if something comes up and you want to talk about it more, um, go ahead and make my day. And I mean that in all the best ways, right? That would make my day, alright? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, last week we finished up in verses 16 and 17. We're going to read them again this week in order to help us to kind of pick up where we left off and be in the right frame of mind moving forward. Verse 16 says, uh, Do you not know that you, remember that's plural, that's the church, you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is in you, the church, collectively. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Remember, holy means to be set apart, and God is setting us apart, making us like no other on the face of this earth, no other people on the face of this earth, we're being set apart for something. And that something we have to acknowledge and understand is bigger than ourselves. We are set apart for something as the church that is bigger than me. It's bigger than ourselves. Uh, bigger than any one of us could individually uh, muster up the energy for. Bigger than all of us combined. 
Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. Self-deception. What is that? Uh, What does it cause? What are its consequences? That's one of those things we're going to look into deeper later on in our sermon today. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. So anybody thinks they're wise, then become a fool, that he may become wise. You thought you were, but you're not yet. So realize that so you can become. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Now that word fool, the Greek for that word fool, um, is where we get the word moron from. You ever had that word cross your mind and maybe in reference to somebody else or to yourself maybe? Stop being a moron. Uh, that's from the Bible. <laughs> Don't misuse it. Right? But that's where the word moron comes from. So if you want to become wise, take all of the information you have gathered all the pithy sayings you've heard over the years, all the opinions of man that the culture has attempted uh, to indoctrinate you with, that you maybe even have taken to be your own opinion, and run all of that through the grid of Scripture. Take all of the worldly wisdom and flush it away. Get rid of it. Become a fool on their account, in their perspective. Become a fool. Wipe the slate clean so that you can start over and truly become wise. And how do you become wise, of course, is the next question. And the next sentence in this passage starts off in such a way that it provides our answer. Paul writes next, For it is written. The word of God. What is the final authoritative word in this church? Should it be my word? Should it be your word? Uh, No, of course not. It's God's word. And why? There is, hopefully you agree with me on this, there's only one opinion in this room today that's free from error, free from sin, uh, at least some level of ignorance. We all have a little bit of that going on, right? And that's God's. That's God's opinion. That's God's knowledge. And it's found written in this book that we have. Praise God that we have it. If my word becomes the authority, if I twist up scripture to match up with my own preconceived notions and worldly wisdom, and by twisting up scripture, I mean I read your Bible verses, but I read them to my own ends and for my own purposes. If that's what's happening, it won't be long before deception starts to set in, like immediately. First my own, and then yours, if you don't catch me at it. Catch me at it, right? That's why you have the Bible in front of you, too. I cannot come into this pulpit with a personal agenda or with a fear of man, and you cannot rest on your laurels and just assume that everything you hear from any Christian teacher, any Christian preacher, is true. Because deception is easy. You know that? Deception is easy. Uh, The wisdom of the world is everywhere in the world. Deception is easy 
Truth is hard. It takes effort. Matthew 7 says this in verse 13 and 14, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. One great reason for us to quit pushing away anything that's hard, deception is easy. So how do you become wise? By looking to the word of God. And Paul starts us off here, as I said, by giving us this example. He says, for it is written, and he goes into the word. He catches the wise in their craftiness. This is from Job 5. And the argument from this passage in Job 5 is that God is the one who sets up and tears down and others will fail in their attempts to build anything contrary to God's way. So Paul brings this truth to us from Job 5. A perfect example of this from Scripture as well. Think about Haman from the book of Esther. What did he build for Mordecai? Do you remember? He wanted, he wanted Mordecai dead. And he built those gallows to hang Mordecai. But who hung on those very gallows? Haman did. He catches the wise in their craftiness. Verse 20 says, and again, here's another scripture. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. The highest echelon, yes. The most brilliant of all men, yes. That they are futile. This is from Psalm 94. And the purpose of this psalm as a whole is that God is the giver of life. He's the giver of hearing. He's the giver of seeing, of thinking, And he, God, is our consolation. He is our rest. And because God is all of those things, it's ridiculous for any human being to think any higher of ourselves than as futility, as a mere vapor who comes and goes. The most most any of us can accomplish through our worldly wisdom is nothing more than futility. It's worthless. It's a vapor. So he says in verse 21, let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. There's nothing worth boasting about. Futility. For, why? Why should we boast in men? For all things are yours. Everything belongs to you. And when he says you, again, where are we? What context? Everything belongs to you, church. Everything belongs to you. Now, wait a minute. What's the problem with those in Corinth? They're being all individualistic, right? And thinking about their own selves and what they're going to get out of everybody and all that kind of stuff. Is that what you say to somebody who's struggling with that? Oh, everything is yours. Could that be manipulated? Well, great. I'm going to keep pushing harder to get mine then. We might think that, but the opposite is actually true. Remember, we are all joint heirs with Christ. Individually, is that true? Yes. And we are all joint heirs with Christ. Is that also true? I said the same thing twice, so don't say no, okay? There's two aspects of that, aren't there? We share in this together. And what all, uh, what all are we robbing ourselves of? Think about this. What all are we robbing ourselves of when we get stuck 
in the attitude of mine and the here and the now. In our self-deception, we scratch and claw to the detriment of others, yes, to get what we believe should be ours in this world, in the here and now, for me. But for what? When through Christ, everything has already been given to us. Scratching and clawing to get something that we're going to misuse when God's already given everything to us. What we're robbing ourselves of, individually and as a body, is rest. We can have rest. There's no scratching and clawing needed. We can have rest. We can have joy. We can have peace. And we can have unity. No scratching and clawing needed. We can scratch and claw together (laughs) towards Christ, knowing that he's already given everything to us. So he says in verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, you get the idea this could go on and on and on this list? All are yours. And you are Christ's. Is it about, are we the end game? Is it all about us? No, all, all is ours. And we are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Perspective. Paul was given to the Corinthian church. He was theirs. For their good. Apollos was given to the Corinthian church. For their good. He was theirs. Peter, Cephas, same guy, was given to them for their good. All of these men loved and served the Lord. All of these men loved and served the church. And all of them were preaching the truth. The wisdom of God. So taking sides as they were and clamoring for your own consumption and aligning yourself individually as if you need to have some sort of a brand identity. Now we think about that in our culture today. Uh, what college team wears this brand and that brand and the professional athletes and, and even musicians only play these kinds of drums or those kinds of guitars and what's your identity? Do we do that in the church at large? Okay? They were doing it. They were under the brand of Paul or the brand of Apollos or the brand of Peter. Does that make sense? So we're trying to push after these things individually as if we need that kind of identity, which is just the foolishness of this world, isn't it? When we do that, it cuts us off and it alienates others from the rest of the body. If I come here and I align myself with something on the face of this earth, and that's my first priority... I will be robbing myself of all that God has given to me in Christ. Like I put a lid on it. Does that make sense? And people have a magnetic pool. Does that make sense? And if if I or you or anybody else comes and aligns themselves with something that's on the face of this earth, and if another person values my thought of them, my valuation of them, what is that going to tempt them to do? We align ourselves, don't we? 
A lot of times that's how cliques and factions and things like that start because we, in a sense, need to have a brand identity even within a group of people. So it robs us, it cuts us off from our what we can have in Christ, our joy, our rest, our peace, and it alienates others and lays before them stumbling blocks that also cuts them off. That's what it results in when we do such things. And this self-deception which results in selfishness. It cuts you off from, as I said, the joy, the peace, the rest, the unity that all of us can have together in Christ. As if this life and this planet and this time is all we have. We know that's not true, but sometimes we live like it is. Do not be deceived by the wisdom of this world. You, singular, individual, and I belong to something far bigger than ourselves. And that's an awesome thing. If all this is for for this, that's a problem. (laughs) And it's not. We belong to something bigger than ourselves, and that's a great thing. And that thing is the church. We belong to the church. And the church belongs to Jesus, and Christ is God's. Now, the three statements from this passage, three statements from this passage that we need to dig into and focus our attention on. Number one is the command, let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. The idea here is that when I am self-deceived, I believe that something is true, That is, in fact, false. You with me so far? And live and make decisions based on that belief. Believing it's true. And even though that belief is not true, I continue in my thinking and in my actions as if what I'm doing is perfectly right and good. So I can go right on in my actions, thinking the very best of everything that I'm doing, and be totally wrong. That's, that ought to ground us a little bit. I can be doing something that's totally, totally wrong, believing something to be true that's false, and have a clear conscience about it. I realize that the fact that Paul has to bring up this idea of self-deception, that whole thing, and his whole bringing up the idea of self-deception indicates that the Corinthian church was not going home after their arguments and after their divisiveness, feeling as though they did anything wrong. They weren't going home from their argumentative, divisive church gatherings feeling convicted. They were probably going home from their arguments and divisive church gatherings feeling vindicated because, doggone it, they were right. And I'm fighting for the cause and everybody else needs to be on board with me. Except they weren't right. And none of them were. None of them were. The Paul people, the Apollos people, the Peter people, none of them were right. The whole argument was foolish. This should give us reason to pause and inspect our own thinking, and it ought to humble us. We need to take a step back and ask ourselves if that little cricket in the Pinocchio movie, what was his name? What? Jiminy, yeah, Jiminy Cricket, thank you. Was he right? 
Remember what he said to Pinocchio? Who was made of wood, by the way, so I'm not sure where that conscience came from. But, no, it's Disney. Let your conscience be your guide. Should we let our consciences be our guide? And the answer is kind of tricky. Because it's impossible not to let it be our guide. It always is our guide, whether we mean for it to be or not. In the same way that we know that we always follow our hearts. Another favorite phrase from a lot of those movies. We always follow our hearts. Remember, we always do what we want. We do what we do because we want what we want. And the way that our consciences work, we are always sifting things through our conscience and discerning right from wrong. We can't not do that. That's always happening. That's a part of the way that God made us. But because of the curse, that determination of right and wrong, is it always on the money? Meaning, like, is it always right? Is true north always indicated correctly? And the answer is no. It's not. It's not. Our consciences are always telling us something. Always trying to work in discerning right from wrong. And we do need to have a clear conscience. The Bible encourages us to have a clear conscience. But our consciences are our consciences. They're ours. And because we are sinners, they are faulty. Uh, there is nothing about me that is perfect outside of Jesus Christ. And so it is safe to assume that somewhere my conscience is out of line. It's out of calibration. And if it's not corrected in that area or those areas or whatever, I will uh, be able to be confronted with a situation, make a wrong decision, take the wrong action, and not have any feeling as though I've done anything wrong. Yikes. And that brings up some questions. Can our conscience be altered? Certainly we'd hope so. And also be weary of that, or leery of that is a better word for that. Can it be made to improve or strengthen? Can it be made to fail and guide us in the wrong direction? And the answer to all of these questions is yes. Yes. Uh, The Bible tells us that we can have a weakened conscience, a defiled conscience, a wounded conscience, an emboldened conscience to sin, an evil conscience, a seared conscience. And positively, we can also have a good conscience, a blameless conscience, a clear conscience, pure conscience, cleared conscience, a perfected conscience, among many other good descriptions. And these all mean different things, both in the bad and the good categories. Uh, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, we'll talk more about that. Those chapters are going to speak much to our consciousness. We'll be able to talk about that more. Uh, realize we can only, or we can also do the exact right thing, and because our consciences have been messed with, maybe even by false teaching, we can feel guilty for doing right. Not only can we feel good about doing wrong because our consciences are messed up, we can also feel wrong about doing good because our consciences are messed up. Does that make sense? So we need to think about that. We need to think about that. But for now, (laughs) 
understand that our consciences can be and need to be calibrated. Uh, They need to be refined and worked on in order for us to have our moral compasses tuned correctly so that we will not be self-deceived. Of course, the perfect question for this moment is, how do you do that? How do we properly tune or calibrate or correct our consciences? Can you guess? (laughs) What is it? Paul said, for it is written. It's the word of God. There's an answer. Yes. Oh, sorry, folks. That's all you got today. No, no. It's the word of God. That's the answer. Peter, think about this in Acts chapter 10. This is a great example of this. Okay, this is not going to happen to you today, but this happened to Peter, and it was God's word to Peter, so we're going to go with it. God gives Peter a vision in Acts chapter 10. Remember that? Of this blanket coming down from heaven. There's all these animals on it. Safe to assume some of them were piggies, okay? Things that Peter had been not able to eat under the Old Testament law. And God says to him, kill and eat. What did Peter say? Bacon! No, he didn't. He said, not so, my Lord. It violated his conscience to think about him eating those kinds of things. He said, no way. But God then said to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. God gave Peter his word and in so doing was recalibrating Peter's conscience. Does that make sense? Paul would later have to recalibrate it again, remember, because Peter would eat with the Gentiles and he would act like he could eat with the Gentiles. And when Jews showed up, he was like, oh, slide that down, I'm not eating that. And Paul said, whoa, 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 hypocrite, don't do that. So our consciences need to be continually calibrated in that way. Martin Luther in his refusal to recant his faith and to follow the false doctrines of the Catholic Church said this. This is Martin Luther. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. And he said that knowing that in so doing, it would be his excommunication, which they were teaching that if you're not in, you are totally out, like destruction out, hell out. And it could even be his imminent death. He said these things. Church, we must have the same resolved resolve as far as our conscience goes. Our conscience must be captive to the word of God. There are preachers who have contradicted the word of God. There are public speakers who have contradicted the word of God. There are musicians, recording artists, and radio DJs who have contradicted the word of God. There are Christian authors who have contradicted the word of God. Obviously, people from all different beliefs and all walks of life have contradicted the word of God. So, do not calibrate your conscience according to what some man says or what some singer says or what some business leader says. Do not calibrate your conscience by how you feel. 
Do not calibrate even your conscience by uh, solely based on your experiences. Solomon tried to go that route in Ecclesiastes, and it did not go well for him. Churches, we must be committed to calibrate, to tune, correct, and maintain our consciences by continually feeding on the Word of God. Victory in this discipline, being in the Word, will result in a continual renewing of our mind, right? Romans 12, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. A continual renewing of our mind and growth. Because we want what we want because we think how we think. And failure in this discipline of being rooted in the Word of God will always eventually result in some kind of self-deception. There isn't like this point we get to in our knowledge of God's Word. I've now read through the Bible. I've arrived. And my conscience is now perfect and and there to be heard again. No. Every day there's more stuff being flung at you, isn't there? Information upon information upon information. And we're all, we got to sift through that, take it in, throw out the bad, keep the good, all that kind of stuff all the time. This discipline is crucial for our lives. Second statement. Let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. What are all the implications and consequences of boasting in men instead of trusting in the authority of God's word? See how these are connected to each other? Self-deception and boasting in men? Think about this for a second. If I make the mistake of boasting in men, or a man, or a woman, who's been found to possess a wisdom in and of themselves that is at best futile and usually worse, it's destructive. And if, unlike the quote from Martin Luther, I allow my conscience to be held captive to the opinions of that man or of men, what direction will I find my conscience to be drifting or moving full speed ahead? I will probably, no, certainly, I will have one of, or most likely a combination of, a defiled conscience, an emboldened conscience to sin, an evil conscience, a seared conscience, or maybe more likely, a weakened conscience and a wounded conscience. And what if the man I'm boasting of ends up being a false teacher? Uh, By the way, if the practices and teachings of the man or woman cause you to have no choice but to boast in them or to totally rely on them, that's exactly what's happening. False teaching of some sort, to some extent, is going on in that situation. And if you've been doing our devotions on our blog with us, Second Peter teaches us these things about false teachers. False teachers follow their feelings and their emotions. Seared consciences. They have seared consciences. They think that what they're doing is right. They exploit others' feelings and emotions. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, meaning that you'll probably hear some Bible and some Christianese mixed in to make it sound right and make it sound good. 
They will speak as though they are the authority, the final say, the expert in the room. They will look for unsteady souls, people who are not yet mature, people who are searching, who are unsure of themselves, unsure of the security in the gospel, unsure of their future. They will take the unsteady and make them even more unstable, forcing their followers even more so to rely on them. They deliberately overlook facts. And they look on their followers with greed and feast on them, sucking the resources and life out of everyone they can for gain. That's all in Second Peter. Every one of those things on that list. Church, let no one boast in men. Do not boast in me. Do not boast in me. Do not boast in anyone but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Him you can boast in. Boasting in man will only bring division and destruction May all of our consciences be captivated by and held captive to the written word of God. That our hearts would be captivated by and held captive to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That we might love him and serve him and bring glory to his name. Let no one boast in men. And remember the third statement, all things are yours. All things are yours. Why would we boast in a man when God is the one who is the giver of every perfect gift? Every. Paul is nothing compared to the Almighty God. Apollos is nothing compared to God. Peter is nothing compared to God. Jesus Christ is the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin and your sin and redeemed us. He did the same thing for me as he did for every one of you. It's Jesus Christ. And God has given everything to Jesus. And he has made us his children by his grace. And he's made us joint heirs with Christ. Again, not fair. (laughs) But we have been made to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He's given everything to us. Do you know why we shouldn't argue and get nasty about any of our personal preferences around here? Because God's given us everything. And the verbiage in this, God's given us the universe. There's nothing. You can say it that way. God's given us the universe. You got a personal preference about preaching styles? The universe! We have personal preferences about carpet color? The universe! Little thing, bigger thing than we even know. Little thing, Blow your mind big. There's no reason when we think of all that he has done and all that he has given to us. This gives us perspective. Uh, Now, how does an accurate conscience and a right perspective informed by the word of God eliminate strife, hostilities, and division? We're we're game for that? (laughs) 
I don't know of any right now, but if there were to be some hostilities and strife and division, let's kill that. You with me on that? Think about this now. Even, even when we think about death, thinking about death, if my focus is on the here and now and nothing else, death is the end. But if my focus is out there and if it's the same as God's, then death is a transition into glory. If my focus is the here and now, then people are opinions to be won, possessions to be gained and lost, ultimately always lost in death if I'm thinking about the here and now. Think of all of the emptiness and the anxiety in all of our relationships if that's how we view it. But if my focus is correct and in line with God's, then people are to be loved, people are to be served, and what is done for Christ is gold and silver and precious stone and will last forever. And we're all in this together because we all belong to him and he's giving everything to us. If I have a me first, here and now perspective, then church is a place where I go for a boost and a pick-me-up. And what if my conscience is all out of whack? What will boost me and pick me up? And it may not be anything good. And, and while being here together ought to give us an encouragement, yes? With God's perspective, church is far more than that. It's who we are. Created in Christ Jesus for good works for his glory. Here and now, that perspective, work. Work is something that's supposed to satisfy me and fulfill me, and help me expand my personal empire. But God's perspective? Work is an opportunity to be salt and light, and and even in my pursuit of excellence, doing my job well. Which, by the way, if we follow God's principles, we'll probably be some of the best employees in the companies we work for, yes? Why? To point people to Him. Better than any other reason to do that. What about marriage? Is marriage a relationship that's supposed to fulfill me? Or is it a covenant that brings life to my spouse and and gives glory to him? What about childhood? Kiddos, is your childhood your time to kick back, have fun, and push off responsibility as long as you can? (laughs) Because adulting is just for adults. By the way, that word is crazy, isn't it? Adulting. Or, Or is it a time of preparation for all that God has for you? Our education. Is it a striving for a piece of paper so you can beat out, beat out the next person for a job? Or is it a means to sharpen your skills so that you can serve people better? What about my present? What about my future? Whoever said it was my present and my future? Do you see how perspective changes things? Money. Is money power? Is it the source of my livelihood? Or am I a steward of what belongs ultimately to the Lord? The true source of my livelihood. This could go on and on. But here's the point. When I am focused on me and fighting for me as if anything and everything is a possession that I have to fight for, then my perspective is skewed and those who I ought to seek to bless now have become a threat to me getting what I want. There's no middle ground. This is exhausting, isn't it? This is exhausting. 
And it just results in more and more internal strife. And it results in division in the church. So, First Baptist, you don't have to fight for personal wins. Don't have to. For gains, for possessions, because God has already given everything to you, church. There's nothing to fight for. There's nothing to fight over. Nothing is going to slip from our grasp that God has already counted as ours. And if I disagree with that statement, if I think there's something outside of God's reach that he missed, then I need to go back to God's word and recalibrate my conscience. Nothing is going to slip from our grasp that God has already counted as ours. So we can let go of our possessive, selfish ambitions. And together, we're in this together. Together experience rest. Isn't it fun to rest together? (laughs) To experience joy. To experience peace and unity. We will be a united church if we hold the word of God as our authority if we boast only in Jesus Christ, and if we remember that by God's grace, all things are ours. Let's pray together. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to grab a hold onto the truth of your word today. That in each one of our hearts, um, the Spirit would help us to see where uh, maybe there's something that needs recalibrated in our conscience or maybe there's a possession that we're clamoring for that you've already given to us in your way and in your time. God, if there is something that we hold as more dear to our thought process and our belief system than your holy written word, God, help us Guard our hearts. Even in this, if if there are people today that are just crushed by this, God, may we rest rest in you and press into you and know that uh, there is no temptation taken to us that's not common to man, but you've made a way of escape for us and you've enabled us to bear up under the load of the weight of this world and our sin and that every bit of it was placed on Jesus Christ at the cross so we are free May we trust wholly in you and boast only in Jesus Christ. And help us to go from here pursuing this faith, pursuing your word, pursuing your way. And may you be glorified in this. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.